You can support the Historian's Podcast by clicking on the GoFundMe link on our homepage, bobcudmore.com. Hi, my name is Neil Langtow. I'm an American historian. I've recently written a book called The Approaching Storm, which is about the path to one of the greatest decisions in American history, the path for the United States to join the Allies in World War I. The story is told through three leading progressives of the time, President Woodrow Wilson, former President Theodore Roosevelt, and the great social reformer, Jane Addams. Each of these three individuals had a very different idea of what America's role should be on the world stage and whether we should participate in this war or what our involvement should be. This is the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore. Let me see if I, I get this uh, right, Neil Langto. In, with, in terms of World War I, in June 1914, Archduke Franz Ferdinand, the Austro-Hungarian heir, was assassinated by Gavrilo Princip, a Bosnian Serb. Austria-Hungary blamed Serbia. And ultimately, the largest war in history up to that point started. The Ottoman Empire, Germany, and Austria formed the Central Powers, and opposing them were Britain, France, Russia, Serbia, and Italy as the Allied Powers. And in 1917, the United States joined the Allied Powers. And you're talking about why America made that decision. When that first incident happened and the first fighting began, was there much sentiment for a a war uh, or to have America join the war by the American people? I think there was a great deal of shock in the United States. No one thought there could be a European war on this scale. It seemed like something out of the Napoleonic era. So I think that was the first reaction in the United States. There was also a lot of people who were quite pleased that we were so safe. You know, we were protected by the two oceans, that we weren't going to be caught up in this conflict. But as the war dragged on, I mean, as it was clear it was not going to end in a month or two or by Christmas, as they once thought, and it was becoming so brutal and so bloody, uh, then it became more of a concern for the United States, especially when we began to be, become indirectly involved uh, through trading with both sides and also with American travel when Americans are going to get caught in the crossfire when they're trying to cross the ocean to get to Europe and German submarines are going to be out there lurking. So it becomes an issue for many Americans exactly what should our role be. Um, I don't think anyone in 1914 was envisioning military involvement, uh, but that will change over time. And as I said, each of these three individuals that we cover in this book will have a very different perspective and try to direct the American public to what they consider to be the right decision in this very, very high-stakes episode in in world history. And we're recording this in early March, and I wanted to ask you this question, and of course by the time uh, the podcast is on the Internet, it'll be some uh, weeks after we record it, but do you see any parallels with our current uh, situation with Russia invading Ukraine? Oh, definitely, definitely. Uh, it's funny, I just recently wrote to my the publisher about this, saying we might want to try to play up that angle because it really is so so much of a parallel. I mean, what, what I particularly see the parallel is when the war begins, the Germans invade Belgium, which is absolutely, you know, it was a bloody, very violent 
uh, takeover that go through Belgium. And that really worked up American public opinion quite a bit. And then these decisions that we're being faced with today were, were coming up in 1914. It's like, well, what do we do? What is our responsibility as a nation when another country is violated by, by an invading power? So I think we are seeing that today. And I think it was a decision that President Wilson had to deal with in 1914. Uh, Roosevelt uh, came to believe that Wilson had made a great mistake with the invasion of Belgium, that he should have protested it and should have done more, whereas Wilson did not do anything. Wilson felt it really was not our call, and we were not bound to do anything. Of course, there was no League of Nations or United Nations or NATO in those days. I do see a great deal of similarities, and I think it's funny, these, these same decisions you know, are, are always facing the United States. You know, of what do we do, what is our place in the world, and how do we respond to, to aggression of this kind? You mentioned two of your main uh, characters from the book, uh, the President Woodrow Wilson and the former President Theodore Roosevelt. But tell us some about Jane Addams. Why did you uh, choose her for your sort of triumvirate of, of people with differing opinions on whether America should enter World War One? It's interesting because so many people don't know her anymore. She's really been forgotten. Uh, in her own time, she really was a giant. She was probably the most famous woman in America in, in the early 20th century. She had made a name for herself as a reformer, and particularly setting up Hull House in Chicago, which was a place, you know, it was a place where you could, she ministered to the poor and the immigrants, immigrant community in Chicago. And that really put her on the map but also just she became almost a major league liberal, you know, as far as being involved in just about every liberal cause in America in the early 1900s. Um, she was involved in the civil rights movement. She was involved in, in suffrage battles, child labor, you name it, she was involved in. So she was, she was a very important figure in that regard. But one of her, her great causes was pacifism. And when this war begins, she was extremely troubled by this, not so much from the perspective of being about nonviolence, more about... She was a globalist internationalist in the sense that it's the 20th century. We should be able to solve problems through diplomacy um, and not through brute force. And she felt the United States, what their job should be with this war, find a way to bring the warring powers to the peace table, get them to talk, get them to broker some kind of agreement. That's what President Wilson should be doing. And that was really what her goal was during this period between 1914 and 1917. Did people or a lot of people listen to her or kind of follow what she she did or not? I think there was a, a decent number of people in 1914 and 15 who felt that her views were not unreasonable. But when you start seeing Americans being killed on the high seas, you start seeing more resistance to them. For example, in 1915, when the Lusitania is sunk and 100 or so Americans are killed in that attack, then you start seeing a hardening of resistance, not necessarily a desire to go to war, but more opposition to talking peace. I mean, one thing about Adams, in fact, all these three characters, they're going to be willing to stick their necks out and, and take unpopular stances. And ultimately, a lot of the things that Adams will be pushing for will become increasingly unpopular, particularly by 1916 and 1917. But she believed that Wilson pretty much saw things her way, and Wilson didn't seem to be inclined to putting the United States in a war, at least in 1915 and 1916. But by 1917, he's going to change a great deal in that regard. Adams' former great friend, uh, Theodore Roosevelt, who she had championed in the Progressive Party, he's going to violently disagree with her and her views and feel that she is totally wrong. Uh, 
Roosevelt believes that if America is to be a great power, we have to be involved in this war. And we have to also have a sufficient enough military to be able to do uh, important and relevant things around the globe and sort of stamp out evildoers where they may occur. Mm. So that's a big, mm. big thing for Roosevelt is we have to build up our military. I didn't realize that uh, Theodore Roosevelt and Jane Addams really knew each other or were allied uh, previously in the progressive movement. All three of these people, um, Wilson even, uh, Roosevelt, or Theodore Roosevelt and Jane Addams are labeled as progressive. We hear that word quite a bit today. What did it mean then? It's a difficult concept to explain to people. Sometimes I have trouble explaining to my students. I mean, the progressive movement was a, was a, was a great reform movement from about the late 19th century to maybe, maybe 1920-ish. And it encompassed all kinds of reforms in, in many different areas. So they were progressives within the Republican Party. They were progressives within the Democratic Party. So all three of these individuals in this book would all be under the progressive umbrella. Did they necessarily agree and stand for the same things? No, they did not. There were certain overlaps between them. Uh, for example, with suffrage, obviously that was a big cause for Jane Addams. Roosevelt came to support it. Wilson was ambivalent about women's suffrage, and he, he took him a long time for him really to get behind it. So you could, you could be a progressive and support one thing and be opposed to another thing. There was really no necessarily continuity of interest among the progressives, but it was a great groundswell of reform that was sweeping the United States in the early 1900s. And in some ways, the war in Europe interrupted that. It's one of the things Jane Addams talked about when the war came. She was very upset. She felt this is going to roll back all the reforms we've been pushing for globally, because when war is on, militarism kind of takes over, and, and, and reactionary uh, behavior tends to kind of take over as well. So it, it's, it's a way to unite these three characters. But yes, they all knew one another. They all dealt with one another. So they weren't just three random individuals. They were progressives who had worked one another and had a certain amount of respect uh, although Roosevelt and Wilson came to detest one another. So that's another big part of this book is the, is the rivalry between mm -hmm. these two individuals. Roosevelt, uh, Theodore, uh, had experience with, with war. America, it wasn't, is it so, or maybe I missed one, the, the previous war to World War I was the Spanish-American War, and, and Roosevelt was part of that. Yes, Roosevelt had done the Rough Riders in, in the Spanish-American War, and that, that pretty much put him on the map. He went from there, the vice presidency, and then the presidency. It made him a national figure. I mean, he always, in some ways it's unfair to call him a warmonger, because some of that's the reputation that, that was hurled at him. He, he himself always said, I didn't, not a, not a single American soldier was killed while I was president, or something to that effect. But he was someone who did value manliness and courage, and once World War I begins, he, he really wanted to go over and fight. He wanted to raise a division if America got involved and go over there like he had done in the Spanish-American War. That's another big part of this book is Roosevelt, when, the war, when America finally gets involved in 1917, he's going to go to Wilson, his hated enemy, and ask him if he will be allowed to take over a division to go fight. And eventually Wilson turns him down. Of course, that embitters Roosevelt even more. Um, whether Will Roosevelt would have been in any shape to go over is another matter altogether. He really wasn't in great physical condition in 1917, and of course he died in 1919, um, so he wasn't in great shape. But he had this idea of going over and fighting, and I think he, he even said he, would, he wouldn't mind being killed in action. That would be a great way to end his life and his career. And then we come to Woodrow Wilson. Uh, you say he's a real complicated guy. How complicated? Wilson was someone I think historians have been wrestling with for a hundred hundred years. I mean, we, we don't we what we hear about Rose Wilson today in the twenty first century is mostly 
concentrated on his racial views, which of course are abhorred by the 21st century standards. Uh, Wilson was someone, you know, in, in his in his administration, he sanctioned segre- increased segregation of all the federal jobs. Um, he was someone who just could not see African Americans uh, as equal, as, as I always say. He he grew up in the South during the Civil War. He had slaves in his family, so his views in in towards towards African Americans were were very very uh, backward. Again, that's the complexity. On the other hand, he could be someone who was so far thinking as far as international relations of trying to get the League of Nations set up later on, and trying to create a whole new global world order. Um, as an individual, he was very complex. Many people saw him as being, you know, he seemed like a very stiff academic in public. But on the other hand, in, in my book, you can see he was carrying on this torrid love affair with, with, a, with a widow. You know, his, 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 his widow, um, his own wife had died early in the war when the war begins, and he meets this uh, other woman, Edith Galt, in 1915. And within a, month, within a month, he's already asked her to marry her. He's writing all these letters to her in the middle of these crises. And no one would have believed that this, this guy who seemed to be you know, sort of this prof- professorial type was writing all these really hot and heavy, steamy love letters. And he does get married to her uh, in 1915. And interesting left very early on, he's sharing all kinds of secrets with her, diplomatic secrets. So it's, it's, it's an interesting part of Wilson's story, this relationship with Edith Galt. Did they finally get married? They did get married in, in December of 1915. So it was a very, very quick courtship. I mean, he met her in March of 1915, asked her to marry her, I think, a month later, uh, and got married in December. It was concerned by some in the Democratic Party, this is going to ruin you politically in 1916 when you run for re-election. It's like, uh, a widow were getting married so soon, and this is not done. I mean, it was only a year after his wife's death. But basically, the cooler heads prevailed, and they said, let him get married. And he, he, he did win the 1916 election, although a very, very close election it was. Yes, and uh, dominated, was it, or was it dominated by talk about the war? And Wilson could say at the time, well, I've kept you out of war, as Franklin Roosevelt was able to uh, say in 1940. Exactly. Uh, When Wilson ran in 1916, interesting, Roosevelt was trying to get the nomination himself in 1916 for the Republican Party. His progressive party was pretty much falling apart by that time in the Republican honchos said, we'll take you back, but we're not going to nominate you. So he, he didn't get the nomination, and he decided he would go ahead and support um, the, re- the Republican candidate, who was Charles Evans Hughes, who was the Supreme Court justice who stepped down to run against Wilson. And the Democrats throughout that campaign used the slogan, as you mentioned, he kept us out of war, he kept us out of war, which infuriated Roosevelt, who said he's barely kept us out of war. What's kept us out of war is the Germans not being willing to go to war with us because they, they know they might... They might uh, lose their current position if they have to fight America, too. It's not anything that Wilson's doing. And Roosevelt also pointed out that Wilson had deployed troops in places like Haiti and the Dominican Republic and and, and places like that, so he really had not kept us out of war. Um, It was a very, very close election, an election that would have changed if I think something like two or 3,000 votes in California had shifted. Um, Hughes would have won California and won the election, and American history would have been changed because it would have been no Woodrow Wilson being president when the war began. It would have been Charles Evans Hughes, and many things could have could have turned in a different direction. Mm. And Charles Evans Hughes was another New Yorker, right? Like the Roosevelts. Yes, he was. He was another New Yorker, and of course, he later became Secretary of State and later went back to the Supreme Court. Uh, and FDR had had some problems with him. <laughs> We're talking about FDR, but uh, Hughes had a very long and distinguished career and was considered to be sort of a, a mild progressive yeah, at the time. You almost could throw him in the program, because he had been governor of New York 
uh, in the early 1900s. He had actually he had beaten William Randolph Hearst um, early in the 1900s for the, for, the, for the governorship in New York. Why do you say this decision, I forget what the language was, is uh, determine the future of the, of the 20th century? Well, it may be a little hyperbole, but the way I think we can look at it is if the United States decides we're not going to get involved in the war, we're not going to join the Allies, it was pretty much a stalemate in 1917. Uh, it's possible that the two sides, neither side can, can get a decisive victory, and it's, they decide to, to have a ceasefire. Uh, if that happens, then you have a whole different scenario unfolding in Europe in the 1920s. You have no Treaty of Versailles. You have no reparations imposed on Germany. You have no defeated Germany. You have no Hitler. So there's all kinds of possibilities that could happen if the war doesn't end as it ended. And there's there's no question that the war might have ended very differently if the United States had not come in. Um, the Allies were 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 struggling in 1917. The British were running out of money. They were depending on us entirely. So there's all kinds of possibilities that might have occurred if Woodrow Wilson said, nope, we're going to just stay on the sidelines and let you guys fight it out, and whoever wins, wins. Um, I think the whole history of the 20th century would have, been, would have probably been different if that had happened. Before America entered the war, the um, American uh, bankers and industrialists were, were playing both sides uh, against the middle, if you will, right? They, they were working with the Germans and the British. Definitely. I mean, we, that was what caused a great deal of friction. I was surprised in doing this book that there was more antagonism towards the Allies than I thought, because, yes, Americans were, we were trading with both sides, and, of course, the British tried to prevent that. They, were, they would, you know, try to, they would stop American cargoes, check to see if there was contraband, and then they would say, okay, we'll let you through. Uh, but we're going we're gonna, to, like, we'll pay you for what we confiscate, but sometimes the payment wouldn't come for, for a long time afterwards. That was very aggravating to a lot of American shippers. The British were also confiscating mail. They were censoring mail, so that was another flashpoint in American uh, and, and England, English relations. So you had that going on. Um, but probably Americans were making more money trading with the Allies, particularly with munitions. The Germans made their own munitions. They didn't really need ours. Uh, whereas the Allies relied a lot more on what we had to offer. So people were getting rich in the United States uh, on, on these arms, on these arms sales uh, to the Allies. So that was so the country really was booming economically before we ever got involved in the war. So in 1915, 16, and into 1917, we were doing very, very well uh, because of the war trade. Um, and, of course, there was some resentment in Europe about that on both sides. You know, basically, oh, those Americans are getting rich off our misery. You know, we're bleeding both sides to death, and Americans are just getting uh, more and more wealthy. They're already so wealthy. Um, so that was, that was some, some, some antagonism there over that issue. What was it that tipped the scales in favor of war in 1917? I think it was Wilson had decided it was no longer feasible to be neutral. There, there are a couple of different things. I mean, basically the Germans who had, had pulled back on their submarine warfare in 1916, um, by early 1917 they had decided, well, we can't, we can't win a long war. We have to try to win it now. And to win it now we have to unleash our submarines to their full capacity. And if Americans get caught in the crossfire, so be it. Because by the time they, if they get involved in the war, by the time they really can send an army over, we will have 
successfully starved out the British, and they will sue for peace sometime in 1917. That was sort of the the plan of the of the, of the German military and navy at the time. You know, let's go for broke, and if the Americans come in, so be it. It'll be too late. Um, Wilson saw that happening in early 1917 when he was informed of it. He broke off diplomatic relations with the Germans. Um, there was still a hope that maybe the Germans might behave, but by March 1917, when American ships were being sunk, that was another push in that direction. And I think Wilson had also come to believe that if he was going to have any say in the peace process, the future peace and the future um, global setup, America would need to be involved in this war. Uh, there's a scene in the book where Jane Adams came to the White House in early 1917, and she talked to Wilson. And she was very discouraged afterward because Wilson pretty much told her that we have to be involved in the war, otherwise I won't be able to get into the peace peace conference through a crack in the door. Like, we have to commit troops, and we have to be involved in this conflict. And, of course, the final piece was the Zimmerman telegram, which was this telegram sent from, from uh, Germany to the German ambassador in Mexico, basically trying to entice Mexico into uh, attacking America on the border, the United States on the border, and sort of saying, well, you know, if you do this, you will have the opportunity to win back some of your territory that was taken from you in, in Texas and Arizona and New Mexico. Mm. It was a whole crazy cockamamie scheme, um, but it was something that when it was released to the American public got people very, very upset. and was really another point towards war, I think, for Wilson. Mm. When America entered the war, were were people behind it or behind the, this war effort? Not like World War II. Much more ambivalence in World War One. Um, even the vote in Congress. The vote in Congress, I think, was was uh, in the House of Representatives for war was I think three seventy two to fifty. And there were many who said if it had been a secret ballot, it would have been even closer than that. So a lot of people felt, well, we have to go along with it. But uh, there was concern in the early months of the war that. A lot of Americans were like, "Well, why are we why are we really involved in this? Is this really necessary? Do we was there are are we are our interests as a nation threatened?" I think as the propaganda machine in the United States got into gear, then people started to see the war as being the war to end all wars, and we must you know we must uh, destroy Kaiserism and things like that. But I do think in the early months of the war there was a little ambivalence. Uh, Roosevelt was very frustrated in that the country was not prepared militarily, and he made this point over and over that if if Wilson had prepared a year earlier, we would have been in a position to send troops into combat, a substantial force, uh, to Europe much faster than we did. I mean, I think even at the end of 1917, I think there was something like only two or 300,000 American troops. It was not until well into 1918 that we had a substantial American army uh, over there. So I think Roosevelt was right in that regard, that probably if we had prepared sooner, um, the United States might have been in a position to do more early in the war than we were. Why is World War I so neglected in the United States? I think our involvement was brief. Um, you know, we're only involved in the war from April 1917 to November 1918. It's not like the Europeans who today who still believe you see World War I as a very, very important conflict for them. They lost so many people, so many young men, whole generation wiped out. Uh, for Americans, it was, you know, as I said, a relatively brief participation uh, in this war, although, as I said, it was a very, very important participation. And later on, there was a great deal of disenchantment. I mean, by the, by the 30s uh, in America, 
many felt that it had been a huge mistake for the United States to be involved in this war. That had been it was some of the things that Franklin Roosevelt will deal with in the 1930s when when another crisis is brewing. You know, Americans are very gun shy at this point. Uh, they felt that they had been tricked almost into going into World War One. Um, it was you know kind of this belief that the the, the big bankers had had dragged us into World War One, which was not necessarily the case, but that was sort of the belief during the 30s. So I think there was a backlash against our involvement, and then I think over time, um, World War II simply overshadowed World War One in so many ways. And I think even for readers today, I think World War II is an easier sell uh, to the reading public than World War One is, at least in the United States, not so much probably in, in Europe. Speaking of uh, readers and authors and so forth, uh, our guest uh, Neil Langto is author of The Approaching Storm, Roosevelt, Wilson, Adams, and Their Clash over America's future, dealing with the run-up uh, to American involvement in World War I. Before you wrote this book, you, you were writing books on baseball. Why did uh, you change the subject matter? Well, the earlier books I had done were studies of pretty much— I did two books on the, on the business of Negro League baseball, the segregated professional leagues that were established in the United States— so I had done those, and those were those were fairly successful. And then the, the, the last book before this one was a biography on Roy Campanella, the great Dodger catcher who was also paralyzed and became an advocate for individuals who were disabled. After I had done those books, which all had some baseball commonality, I decided I wanted to move on to a different topic and move into something more in general history. What had gotten me interested in World War One was a, a group of books written by the journalist Mark Sullivan. He was a a great writer in uh, in the early 20th century, uh, who wrote a book, a series of books about contemporary American history, which contemporary for him was the early 1900s. And I had read some of his books on World War One and thought they were absolutely fascinating. I felt I didn't know much about them, and I saw that there was a possibility of a book buried in those volumes, and that's what led me to this topic, sort of the lead up into how we got involved in this war, which I think is, is so important but has been neglected. Are you a college professor? Yes, I do have a Ph.D., and I do teach at the University of Delaware as well. The uh, book is just out. Do you have any sense of uh, how it's uh, going as, you know, adding to the public uh, debate? I think it's getting some attention. I, I, I wish it would get a little more attention. I think the book publishing industry is very is very difficult these days, um, you know, with the closing of so many bookstores, and Amazon is kind of like this great Goliath that... that that uh, I think like 80% of all books are purchased through through Amazon. So I think it, even in the period since my last book came out in 2011 and this book came out in late 2021, I think a lot has changed. It, 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 I think it's more difficult to publicize a book. Um, I've been doing a lot of podcasts, which has been helpful. I'm glad to be on this one, of course, with you. It's a struggle, I think, because World War One, as we've talked about, is not. It's hard for people to wrap their wrap their minds around it. What exactly is for the United States? So. That's, that's what I've been trying to do as much as possible, to get people interested in the subject and see its value and its relevance to us in the 21st century. And, of course, the World War I uh, led right into the uh, pandemic of uh, those times, uh, you know, similar to our pandemic. Exactly. In fact, I think more Americans may have died in the 1918 flu epidemic than, than died during World War I. So, yeah, they're, they're, that, the, the Spanish flu, as they called it, was was. was absolutely catastrophic. It's not something I really mentioned in the book, although I do mention another another great uh, health issue at the time, because um, the book also deals with, it's, 
deals with American life. I mean, I think that's part of a big part of this book also is a life in America in those years because that's the, the backdrop is sort of trying to, to bring that to to uh, to the fore. Um, but there's a little section about pol- the polio epidemic of 1916, which was so uh, so unbelievably scary to Americans of that time. You know, of trying to there was nothing they could give them. There was nothing they could do. Um, and it was something that cropped up practically every year. There would be, they'd say, the summer polio season. And in, in, in this book, I talk about New York, how in the summer of 1916, there was just, it was just sweeping through the city, and it was so frightening. And Roosevelt and Oyster Bay was trying to, you know, they were trying to keep it out of Oyster Bay. Wilson was trying to keep his grandchildren away from it. So it was, it was a, a reality of life that every American had to cope with. So there's all kinds of other issues that Americans deal with, not just World War I, uh, at this time, but just sort of the the new America of 1915, 16, 17, which is it, it's on the cusp of modernism. It's you know you see automobiles and, and the and motion pictures and things like that all starting to make their mark in American society at this time. Neil Langto is author of The Approaching Storm: Roosevelt, Wilson, Adams, and Their Clash Over America's Future. The book published by Riverhead. Penguin. You've been listening to the Historian's Podcast. You can support the podcast by clicking on the GoFundMe link on our homepage, bobcudmore.com.